On this episode of the Fraternity Sweater Life podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Shushak of the Virginia Tech University to discuss human flourishing. Our grandest hope in higher education and our work at colleges and universities is that the potential that a human being possesses flourishes to its greatest height. And the need for a continued focus on our roles as educators. We have to view ourselves as educators and we have to embrace that students are whole human beings and we play a role in all of those, you know, the intellectual life, uh, social life, and a personal life, um, our spiritual life, these are all things that um, are part of a student's learning. Hello and welcome to the Fraternity Sorority Life podcast. I'm your host, Matt Deeg, and I want to start by wishing you a happy April. In Fraternity Sorority Lifeland, April is known as Advisor Appreciation Month, so a big podcast thank you to all campus, headquarters, and alumni, alumni, advisors who work day after day to help students learn and grow and our organizations flourish. Here at the FSL Podcast, though, I'm also calling this month the Month of Learning. It's easy to forget about our responsibilities as educators in the Fraternity Sorority Life world as the day-to-day fires keep us dashing about. Only when the end of the year pops up and we have to share our departmental assessment do we really think about what students are learning and how they're learning. I hope to persuade you this month that not only is it essential that we embrace our roles as educators on an ongoing basis, but that it is also easier to do than our current mental biases would have us to believe. In this episode, you'll hear from Dr. Shushak about why student learning matters in fraternity sorority life and how simple intentionality can lead to great results. Later this month, I'll be joined by Annie Carlson Welch, a former FSA who leads departmental assessment for North Carolina State's University College, and by Ari Stillman, AFA's Director of Research and Assessment. At the end of the day, though, if we can't share how our roles contribute to student learning, if we aren't making student learning and growth the focus of all of our conversations and programming, we are missing out on the one role and mission we all share in higher education helping students to flourish and develop into the best possible leaders, learners, and selves they can be. So my encouragement, take this month to ponder how you're putting learning and development at the forefront of your daily work, and let me know what that looks like. And now, our guest for the day. Dr. Frank Shushak serves as Senior Associate Vice President for Student Affairs and Associate Professor of Higher Education at Virginia Tech University. His writing and research focus on student learning and engagement and the impact of positive psychology on student growth. He additionally serves as the executive editor of About Campus, one of ACPA's main publications. He's a member of Delta Tau Delta fraternity, and I'm excited that he's agreed to chat with me today about student learning and growth in fraternity sorority life. Dr. Shushak, welcome to the show. Oh, welcome. I'm glad to be here, Matt. I really appreciate you you joining me on here. One of the one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, um, you know, in a couple episodes ago, I talked with Byron and he said, dude, you need to talk to Frank um, <laughs> about student learning and student learning outcomes and how the division is really pursuing those things because that's really influenced the work he's done in Fraternity Sorority Life. And so I just want to kick it off by asking you, what does student learning mean to you? Well, you know, the, gosh, Matt, I, I think what it means is um, – human flourishing, you know, our, our our grandest hope in higher education and our work at colleges and universities is that the potential that a human being possesses flourishes to its greatest heights. And, you know, I, I, I view every 
student as a possibility of potential. I mean, they've they've uh, they're landing on our campuses in a in, in a place where they're in the process of developing. And, and you know what we what we really hope for is that people uh, students continue that journey, and that's what what learning is. You know, I like to use the word becoming. I mean, we're is uh, I say if you're breathing you're still becoming, and uh, our hope is that we can inspire students to continue that process until the day that they die. So learning is becoming more than you are uh, at present, or or better yet, discovering um, what you are and the way you want to use those gifts and talents. And, you know, we're a a land-grant university, and um, uh, we have a wonderful motto at Virginia Tech. It's uh, ut prosum which in Latin means that I may serve. And I like to tell students at Virginia Tech that our greatest hope is that um, that they don't carve out a moment to serve in their life post-graduation, but they figure out a way to discover what their gifts and talents are, um, the way that they're uniquely put together, where their greatest potential is, and that they also find a world need out there. And if they can use their education to develop those talents and to pursue uh, making a difference around that world need, then their entire life becomes a gift of service as opposed to just carving out a moment of time here and there to do service. It's a much better value proposition if the whole crux of our life is one where we're um, using our gifts and talents to make a difference in the world. And I think learning is what uncovers that and is our best shot of changing the world. Well, I like that you don't really – you haven't even in that definition separated out the whole in-classroom, out-of-classroom learning, what we, you know, the co-curricular versus curricular learning. You're just lumping it all together and saying these are things that students need to know so they can go out and serve. And the other thing that stood out to me is the usage of the Virginia Tech motto in the work that you're doing and how that influences – kind of how you work with students and how you empower them. Does that really direct like a lot of the student affairs philosophy you've got going on that specific motto? Absolutely. I th- you know, I, I think it's one of our greatest assets because it points us outward, you know, that, uh, you know, one way to think about higher education is preparing ourselves for jobs so we can make a living and that we can take care of um, those that we love. But I think, the motto prosum that I may serve continues to push us outward that that if we have the opportunity to uh, come to a university particular a major particularly a, a major research university we we have a uh, a real privilege to be at this kind of place and that it really isn't just for us that if uh, if we keep it all to ourselves that we're really doing this unique privilege an injustice that we we really need to go out and and uh, assume the responsibility to make the world more humane and more just and um, to promote opportunity for lots of people. Now, I, I remind people that, you know, still in the United States, just roughly 30% of the population has an opportunity to get a college degree. And if you look at that from um, the world's standpoint, you know, that's roughly 6%. Uh, of the world's population. And if you think about, you know, the percentage of people that have opportunity to go to a major research university or world-class university, uh, gosh, you're, you're, you're down into the 1% range. And all of us, if we have an opportunity to, to get a higher education, uh, gosh, we got to pay it forward. We got to think about ways that we bring others 
uh, opportunity because of the unique opportunity that that we have. And I'm I'm glad you mentioned the the part about not separating learning. I you know learning is learning, and uh, right. uh, I, I try not to even. Uh, get too particular about talking about in class or out of class because those create kind of artificial boundaries, you know, the way that we talk about intellectual learning or or you know, whether we're talking about uh, interpersonal learning or whatever it is. It's learning is learning and it forms us in holistic ways. We're, we're whole human beings and I don't even really like it when we talk about the university as different sides of the house. You know, I hear lots of colleagues say, you know, the academic side of the house or the student affairs side of the house. I'm just not sure those kind of boundaries actually do us a lot of good in thinking about the, what we know for sure is the way human beings develop, and they don't develop in compartments. They're, they're all influenced by learning that's happening all the time in every moment, in every place, in every interaction. Yeah, you know, and two things you said there. One, just the you know, I, I didn't know the 30% um, statistic. I knew that it was small, but I didn't realize it was that that low. But then the 1% attending the major research institutions. And, you know, if we add fraternity and sorority membership on top of that, essentially we're looking at the privileged of the privileged of the privileged, right? That's right. I mean, every single person. Uh, you know, I know th- there's a continuum of privilege on a university campus, but um, if you look at uh, the continuum within the university, and you lay that on a world stage that we are among the most most privileged. And if you look at the demographic of fraternity and sorority membership, you know that um, that really is uh, typically on the higher end of the privilege continuum within the university. So, gosh, um, if you think about privilege, the more privileged you are, the more responsibility you have to those who don't have privilege, then... Our um, students have a ton of it, yeah. And they have a ton lives. of it, and therefore a ton of responsibility to do something that is worthwhile and valuable to making the world better. Yeah. Well, and, you know, one of the things you mentioned, too, and, and perhaps these kind of tie in together, right, helping to make the world better also connects with really understanding the entire scope of the learning. And so... Um, you know, you talked about that we don't separate them out. So how do we make the learning that happens across the institution, how do we make that a fluid learning process? You know, because I think the students themselves, right, our students separate it out. They say, well, I go to class, and then I am involved in my fraternity, my sorority, you know, my student body, government, whatever it is, and they may not necessarily be making those connections, but how do we help them to... Um, how do we make that learning very fluid across the board? Well, you know, I, people uh, ask these kinds of questions. I'm often reminded that you know it begins with us, meaning those who um, formally have the responsibility for facilitating learning. And you know, I think a really important transition that's happening, particularly in student affairs, uh, and therefore. Um, I, th- I think trickling into fraternity and sorority life as well is that everybody doing this work has to view themselves as an educator. Right. And and they have to kind of raise to a new level of consciousness that every moment um, that they are interacting on a college campus is an opportunity to create a learning environment. Every conversation, every meeting, every class, these are... Um, 
you know, we are walking classrooms in lots of ways. We're walking learning environments. And we have a lot uh, of ability to convene conversations, to, to direct people to meaningful questions, to, to um, challenge um, assumptions about the kinds of things that make a difference in the kinds of worlds that we construct. And so, you know, I, I, I think it has to begin with a shift in mentality and a shift in thinking about what we're doing when we're doing what we're doing. Yeah, it makes me think about, so this past month I've been reading articles focused on character development. And, you know, so many of them fixate in on doing that within the middle school, high school, elementary school range. But every single one of them talks about the idea that teachers can't just have a class focused in and saying, well, here's, we're going to spend an hour doing character development, but they have to model it. And they have to continually engage their students, everybody that they're working with in those conversations. And that's what we're doing on a, on a constant basis, right? Like, how do we draw connections between, I work with students and I'm like, well, okay, let's talk about bridging the gap between what you're learning in your finance class and what you're doing currently in your role as an officer. Um, and so helping them to create those connections. And that just requires us a little bit, right, to be um, creative and pattern seekers almost, right? Like looking out for how everything ties together. Absolutely. That, that's a great point. And I like, too, that you're, you're, uh, you're, you're thinking about character development. And uh, just this past, last, this past week, I, I had the opportunity to interview uh, David Brooks, who uh, writes a lot about education for the New York Times, and writes a lot of op-eds, and yeah. he's, got a, he's got a new book out. And as part of my interview, we talked about his new book. And I it's think one of, the things that, one of the things that he talked to me about that uh, was the idea that he thinks college and universities have become really dispositioned towards what he calls resume virtues, you know, building a resume and uh, building a repertoire of, um, of um, things to, to collect that allow us to get good jobs and to make better jobs and to advance in our careers. But he adds that um, there's a whole other set of virtues other than resume virtues, and he calls them character virtues. And he says, gosh, that's, that's what we haven't done the best job of. Right. Uh, and so that is a holistic enterprise, and all the reason why just intellectual life and skill building for jobs isn't enough, that um, we're building human beings and we're, we're building the kind of human beings that we, that we want to care about um, injustice, we want to care about racism, we want to care about poverty, we want to care about um, raising others into situations where they find opportunity and can reach their potential too. Um, and, you know, these are the sorts of things that that um, we really need to be about. Uh, and fraternity and sorority life can be places of that when done well that can exploit the both resume virtues and character virtues of our students. And the more we do that, the better human beings we develop and the better chance the world has to be a really um, humane and just place for those who uh, traverse it. Yeah, and we talk about all the time, right, in fraternity sorority life that, you know, we're going to help develop that character and we're going to, we have all of those different principles and, and views of what we want the ideal member, man or woman to look like. And, 
you know, how are we actually helping them to grow into that and then make a difference with what they've learned and developed too. Um, and I think that's the other piece, right? So that's where the whole almost resume virtues come into play because character virtues are great, but if we can't do anything with them, um, you know, we, we just are there and we ha- we're good humans, but then we want to also be good productive humans. And so I think they're, both, of the, both of the two exist in, in tangent, right? And I think obviously at the end of the day, we would, I would prefer to have a bunch of good humans um, than productive humans. Um, but yeah, I, I love that kind of mixture of both and the opportunity to do both within the higher ed setting. Absolutely. Well, and you know, our, our challenge... Um, with the human condition is the, you know, the the idea to um, to move beyond our rhetoric and to make those things happen. And you know, as a you know, I'm a fraternity man, and I know that you care a lot about fraternity and sorority life and what we're doing. And and um, we can say all day long um, that uh, we want to build character and that we want to be values driven, but at the end of the day. Uh, what we say is nowhere near um, uh, where it needs to be with what we're actually doing. Right. So let's stick on this whole idea of the human development, the character development thing, um, and thinking about you know any any of the student affairs professionals that are listening who want to create a a learning center to develop a. A human development, a character development focus for the students that they work with. What do you What do you want them to know? What advice would you give them as you've been kind of pondering and processing this, so they could um, do that work better? Well, uh, Matt, you know one of the things that has caught my attention. There's a, a number of studies uh, that, um, as part of a larger study called the Wabash studies, and you know mm-hmm. essentially they're they're looking at. Um, the impact of uh, liberal arts education on student outcomes and and even things uh, like character development. But um, it, it, one of the things that struck me is they were looking at um, the results of something that we call high impact practices. And you know, high impact practices are things like um, um, freshman seminars, uh, capstone courses, study abroad, undergraduate research, leadership and involvement. Um, you know, I, I would put uh, fraternity and sorority life as a you know an opportunity that has a chance to be what is called a high impact practice. But it's interesting that they're finding lots of times that um, you know we do these high impact practices because they're supposed to make a big difference related to learning. But what we're learning through these studies is that um, a lot of these high impact practices aren't making all that much difference. And part of it is it's not because the practice doesn't uh, work in of itself, but the way that we employ it doesn't work. And I think this goes to our own growth as well. So, you know, there's 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 some particular particular things that happen that encourage growth. Often it's new information, new stimuli, being exposed to something new, um, then having the opportunity to engage that, and then the third part is. Um, is is actually having the chance to to reflect on the meaning of what it was that we did, and so I think about this both on an individual level and our own professional development and how we work with students. Um, first of all, are, are we exposing students 
to new opportunities, new stimuli, new information, new ways of thinking, diverse people. We can ask our same the same question to ourselves, right? Um, because we can get in deep, deep ruts, and you know all the literature would say that as we grow older, um, we find ourselves in deep, deep ruts. And um, as David Brooks told me last week, he finds that most people by in their thirties are much more boring than they were when they were in their early twenties. You know <laughs> that they're, and I think that's true. We're often much more curious and. Um, much more adventuresome and much more willing to to take risks and, and and exposing ourselves to new things pushes us out of our comfort uh, realm and and we got to do that intentionally. We need to help students do that, but we got to do it for ourselves. But then we got to take that and actually be participants in it and and uh, engage it and and hold it and play around with it and and explore it. Um, we need to do that, help our students do that, but we got to do that ourselves. It's, um, you know, it's the difference between exposing yourself up to something and then actually um, being a participant and engaging it. So that's kind of step two. And then, you know, the third part that we know is then we got to kind of step back. We got to think about what we've learned. We got to make sense of it and then have a, a, a period of time where we think about the so what, you know, therefore, what does that mean for how I want to live my life again uh, in the next uh, day ahead? So, you know, I, I think that works in the way that we think about student learning uh, and facilitating experiences for students and going back to these high-impact practices. Um, you know, the one example was study abroad. You can send people off to study abroad, and they can go and participate in study abroad, and it can have zero impact. But if you do the front end and there's some learning that goes in, there's some data collection, there's some exposure to new things, then you go and experience it. And then you have the opportunity to make sense of it and to translate into something um, uh, that's future-oriented. Then it has a totally different impact in the way that right. uh, it, it impacts us, particularly things like uh, intercultural competence. So that's my thought. I think we got to be really intentional about our own growth and our own development. And just like you do in this podcast, I mean, you entered a you entered a realm of a, a possibility and probably got into learning how to do it and how to make it more effective. And then you're doing it. And then after you do it, you probably try to make sense of what just happened and ask the question of what that means for what you're going to do later. Oh, yeah. And I would say that these are like some of the best learning moments for me on, on a given basis of just having these conversations. I think when you were talking about the high impact practices, so, um, you know, one thing that's really cool is AFA actually, one of our new publications coming out in a couple months is actually solely vote, devoted to high impact practices. Um, and so some really cool articles are getting written there. Um, as you were talking about the whole idea of exposing people to new things and kind of letting them sit, settle into it, my mind just kept on thinking about just everything that I've been reading about self-authorship and how that is really helping our, our students and even ourselves to take ownership of, of what we're seeing, what we're believing, and really also question it and see how we're going to either accept, reject, apply, deny it to our lives. Um, and so, you know, that just really, really stood out. And then I just had this crazy thought as you were, and I have lots of crazy thoughts, but... Um, as you were talking about the study abroad trip and the preparation for going abroad and the development of intercultural competencies and all those different things. And I just was wondering, 
what would happen if we were to actually do that with every member that's joining a fraternity or sorority and were to actually sit down with them and have that processing piece ahead of time? You know, I think we hope that that happens in the recruitment process uh, or during the new member education process. But if we were to be intentional about here's what you're getting into, here's what this looks like, here is the scope of this world that you're joining, um, and then helping them to continually process through that. I think that would be really incredible. And I think, I think some of the stuff you're doing um, in Office of Attorneys 40 Life and Byron's doing with the whole legacy project kind of reflects some of that, right? And helping chapters to reflect on what they're doing and, and how they're helping their members to learn and grow. But I think that would be kind of a fascinating way to, to examine the fraternal membership process. Well, your your question is a, is is um, or your statement is uh, you know I think brilliant, which is is what we know is that when we do these things well, the potential for learning is exponential. Right. So you know if if you use kind of my study abroad uh, example as a metaphor for thinking about how we're thinking about fraternity and sorority life, you can employ a fraternity and sorority life program and actually have zero impact on the things that you say you want to occur. So with study abroad, almost all of us say that we're doing study abroad because we're trying to strengthen students' intercultural competence. And then we employ them on a study abroad program and it's having no impact. Well, it's not that the study abroad isn't, study abroad isn't working. It's the way that we're employing it that's not working. It's that right. we're not doing the preparation on the front. We're not doing the reflection on the end. We're not facilitating the sense-making. So just to you know, put it back into what what you were trying to uh, get at is if uh, you know if we employ a fraternity and sorority life program in a way where there is um, I, I like to think of the model prepare engage reflect where there's preparation on the front end and there's engagement and there's reflection on what has just occurred so that that reflection can inform the next stage of preparation which therefore informs the next stage of engagement which therefore Affects the next uh, affects the next stage of reflection. You know, it's a, it's an ongoing amplifying loop. And right. boy, when when we get in uh, the sweet spot of doing that, you know, these programs can be literally transforming in the way that students experience their their own learning. And that's when we're doing our best work. Yeah, and I think you know. So as I'm as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking about like trying to share that model and and what that looks like with a group of student leaders. And I, I already hear their voices in the background going, well, that sounds really hard. Um, is it really that hard? Like, I don't think it would be. How, how could we explain this or how could we work this so it's not that hard or that difficult for them? Well, it, it's really not hard. It is intentional. And, right. you know, uh, so that means that we've got to do some work on the front end and really think about, first of all, you know, this is not a, it's just a reality is often what we're doing is employing experiences. Um, and uh, it, it's, but thinking ahead of time, what is it? What are the outcomes of what we're trying to achieve as a result of the experience? As, as easy as that sounds, it's, it's actually something we don't do very often. So, I mean, I even think of small things like um, a meeting with uh, IFC leaders, uh, you know, that you you have on a weekly basis. I mean, I think an easy thing we can do is say, hey, what is it that I'm trying to help 
be learned as a result of this meeting today. And if you make, with that small step, you might think, well, given that I'm really trying to advance this, then I might ask them to read this short article and have a conversation about that article um, uh, when we get there. Not, And then have them think about what that means for their leadership. So it's, there's, there's small little moves. I think asking students to read small bits and to think about things and to ask them meaningful questions when you gather them, help them build community, um, build social capital. And, and, uh, but and then the easy thing is uh, concluding by, by saying, you know, so what? What does this mean? What does this mean for your life? How can you apply that? What, what can you learn from this conversation that we just had? They're, they're small moves, but all the literature would say they have huge impacts. So small moves, huge impacts. Um, a really practical example, and Byron maybe um, has shared with you that we're doing these fraternal leader institutes, and mm-hmm. there's a little bit of reading on the front end, and there's a couple meetings on the front end before they go have these two-day experiences. Um, so there's some preparation, asking them to think about some things. They take their they take the strength instrument. They read a couple short articles about friendship. And then they go and they have this experience, but then on the end of it all, there's also a time of reflection and, and you know, doing what I call the so what. You know, so what does this mean? Because you did this about the way you're going to live your life, about the way you're going to interact with your fraternity. Um, that, again, is the prepare, engage, reflect. It, so it's not hard, but it's not easy. Yeah. I think. Well, I think the the easy part is really just following that you know, following the model and really engaging them in that. I think the hard part is the intentionality, right? It's the the foresight and thinking about here's what I would like them to get out of this or at least discuss or think about. Um, and so, you know, working with staff and students to think about, you know, the, the dreaded learning outcomes. Um, I don't dread them, but some people do. Um, of like the work that we're trying to do Um is really, I think that's what students and, and staff view is kind of difficult, right? Is what's that front end piece? But once we get past that, the rest of it is just engaging them in that conversation, then guiding them through this process. Which I really, I love the the way that you're um, the way that you're describing it. Um, so, well, and of course, you know, there's there is one huge barrier to all of this, and and that's our the own our own pace of life and mm-hmm. so much of it is that we're moving at the pace of light and therefore um you know we're we're flying from one thing to the next and we've had very little time to be you know thoughtful about what we're trying to employ and so you know one one thing that we've got to do is slow down ourselves you know we got to ask our students to slow down and enjoy a moment as well but we've got to do that too and and um, and that's easier said said than done. Um, but we're going to be a lot more thoughtful about what we enact for ourselves and for our students if we can slow down and breathe for just a moment. Yeah, and that's one of the things I've been having conversations with a bunch of different colleagues about just the need for and wondering how many professionals actually do reflect on their daily work or on a weekly basis and think about, like, where am I? Where do I want to go? What am I trying to do? Rather than just you know, continuing to 
almost drive the car straight ahead without actually checking the checking navigation, thinking, am I still on the right track? Am I still going the right direction or the way that I was hoping to go? Um, and so I can't agree any more that, or I can't agree more that we need to be pausing and reflecting ourselves on kind of what we're trying to do um, as professionals and as students. Well, Matt, you, you uh, earlier tried to connect professional development and our own learning and our students' learning and you know, one of the ways we expose ourselves to diverse stimuli, to new information, to new thoughts, is by reading. Mm-hmm. And um, I have a colleague who's been studying, particularly in student affairs, our propensity to read. And as you might guess, the place in our career where we're reading the most, and you're about to enter it as you enter into your next phase of graduate education, is we read the most when we're graduate students. And there is a correlation between um, our distance from graduate school and the amount that we continue to read. So, you know, essentially what my colleague is finding is those that are the most senior people um, in student affairs are reading the least, and so they're being exposed uh, less to new stimuli, new ideas, new new information. So. We, we, gosh, but we also know that about experiences. That um, right. um, I, there's a great book called Curiosity by Todd Cashton, and you know he says, "Gosh, the the problem is that most uh, often people's curiosity just wanes with every year of life, and so, but it, but it's malleable. We can make ourselves more curious, um, which then makes us better learners. But we have to be intentional about it, or that we'll." lull ourselves to sleep in routine and get in a deep rut and, you know, ultimately find ourselves at 40 and not be very interesting people. Yeah, and it's easy to go through the the day-to-day in student affairs and just, you know, answer questions and put out fires and not be intentional and not engage in that learning. And, um, you know, I'm not surprised by that finding that, you know, as we move outside of our grad work, move on in the field, um, that you know the time we spend doing those reflective activities, doing that reading, decreases. But honestly, like that's those that's where we need it the most is to keep that you know level of learning high, the level of creativity high. So we're constantly bringing in new information and new ways of looking at and examining the world into the work that we do with students. So um, yeah, I hope. I always I have a challenge every summer for for the Association of Fraternity Sorority Advisors where I offer to pay money to the foundation for every page that's read um, because I just want people to read more books and journal articles. Um, <laughs> and you know maybe that's dorky, but that's like that's something that I you know it's kind of like book it um, except for for grownups. Um, so yeah, so. Thinking about just straight up fraternity sorority life, um, you know, we've talked about this idea of learning and growth and creating a learning centered experience. But I'm curious, like very specific, like ideas or areas of like opportunities where we have the potential for student and lo- student learning and growth in our fraternal organizations. Um, what are some of the ones that we take really good advantage of? Um, as a whole, and then some of the ones that we just kind of miss? You know, the interesting thing is, is um, it, it, seem, it is so subtle but so profound, is really just about everything that we do has an opportunity to be mundane or to be profound. 
I mean, everything from the student that walks in the office and has a conversation um, to, you know, a risk management workshop to uh, a staff meeting to an org meeting to an executive council meeting to a leadership class. I mean, really, truly, every one of those experiences can be mundane and uneventful or profound or transformative. And it's a matter of thinking about what you're doing when you're doing what you're doing. So, um, it, 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 you know, I don't have a prescription of that. We you know we should do these things and not <laughs> these things. I, you know, I think it is how we view everything that we're doing. Do we do we understand that every conversation, every moment, every meeting, every relationship has potential? Now, there's certain things that that. Um, you know, Peter Block in his book Community, he talks about convening a conversation. Do we, when we convene a conversation, do do we know what we're trying to accomplish when we're doing it? And, and do we value the humanity that's in the room? Do we help people get to know each other in a more meaningful way? Do we ask good questions? Um, you know, I think one of the most powerful tools that we carry around with us is the question. Mm-hmm. A well-placed, thoughtful question. Whether it's at the front desk of entering an office or it's a a one-on-one kind of situation at a coffee shop, that question could be profoundly influential in the development of a relationship or a shared understanding or an insight about life and its greater purpose. So, you know, I, I think that we've got all the tools We've, we've got this great thing that we call fraternity and sorority life that often comes with lots of things that we do, you know, from recruitment to um, events to um, meetings to discussions about policy. Every one of those can be tools to uh, transformative uh, moments. So it's it's just a matter of thinking about them and what we want to do with them and being thoughtful about the kinds of questions that we ask and how we view the person sitting across the table from us. Yeah, and you know, even as you're saying all those different things that we do, right, I'm not sure we could ever – we don't need to add new things. We just need to reexamine our approach to them, kind of like what you were saying earlier with – just the preparation, the reflection, and the meaning making. Um, and you had three other words that you used that were what were those? What was the the way you used that? I I, I call it the in my own words a prepare, engage, reflect model. Yeah, prepare, engage, reflect. Right. So if we're not doing that, every single experience that happens is pretty mundane, right? Like you can go to a meeting and you can sit there and you could even run it. And if you're not preparing for it, engaging, and then reflecting on it afterwards, it's just mundane and boring. Uh, you could go to, like, the best museum in the world, and if you're not actually doing any of those things, it's just very mundane versus, you know, when we go through those things. I think what I'm hearing from you and what, you know, I think is probably the biggest takeaway for me is that in every conversation and every opportunity that we have to interact with students and staff, that we need to one be ready to be in that moment but then two once the moment is finished we need to reflect on it to see what meaning making we're going to have from it Um, and so training ourselves training our students 
to go through those processes is really what's going to create the high impact practice for fraternity, right? Is helping to move from just the, we did that to, this is a really profound experience, even though to the outsider, it just seems like, oh, you just had another meeting. That is exactly it. And and so, you know, I go back to this whole study abroad idea. How can someone go to Africa, uh, visit another culture, and it have no impact on their intercultural competence. Well, it's actually pretty easy. We just go right. tourists. It's kind of interesting. We haven't really dug deep to try to make sense of that. We haven't learned anything on the front end that prepared us to see things in a new way. So it's just an experience, and that's what the Wabash studies are saying. Oh, by the way, you just spent all that money, and you sent students to Africa, and it had no impact on their intercultural competence. But if you do it differently, it's exponential uh, impact. So, you know, it's these small moves. It makes, you know, know, the great thing I think about this kind of every moment counts and every person's an educator is it also means the administrative assistant in your fraternity and sorority life office is an educator. And the moments that they convene matter just as much as all the other ones does. It, it limits a hierarchy, too, that, you know, that um, a professor is where uh, the facilitation of learning happens. Well, I'm here to tell you that housekeepers, that um, administrative assistants uh, often employ these things in more profound ways than people with PhDs, and therefore they are greater facilitators of learning. Yeah, because they're being intentional and they're actually asking rather than just sharing. Right. You got it. Right. That's exactly right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I'm curious as we kind of sort of wrap up this conversation, uh, how can fraternity sorority professionals listening? And I know this might kind of circle all the way back to a lot of the things we've talked about. How can they keep student learning front and center in that experience, in the fraternity sorority life experience, right? So we're interacting and and advising chapter leaders and visiting with different organizational members. How do we make sure to keep that learning front and center? Well, first and foremost, being intentional about it, you know, actually Mm -hmm. saying that you're going to do it and then being serious about doing that. And then I think, too, it's hiring good people who are who view themselves as educators, who want to um, that have a sense of calling to to use fraternity sorority life as a laboratory for developing um, character virtues and um, facilitating learning, and who are open to learning themselves. You know that that is very much part of who they are. So you know, I think people matter and talent matters, and calling matters, all those things kind of matter. So having really good people have a sense of clarity about what they're trying to do together. And then third, um, and this is related to that propensity to be learners themselves, it's, it's, you know, we can never be satisfied with asking students to be learners when we're not learners ourselves. Um, You know, I think we need to be reading together. We need to be talking together. We need to be exposing ourselves to new ideas and um, and uh, trying to make sense of that and doing that in the context of community, uh, pursuing um, meaningful relationships, being willing to fail and to take some risks. These are all things that um, that we've got to be able to do, and then doing them with students. You know, I think engaging students in our own learning process. And you mentioned self authorship, but um, uh, which 
it means seeing students as our partners in learning uh, and uh, great facilitators of helping us become learners too. It, it lowers the, um, it flattens the playing field. It puts us all on the page of learners and commitment together. Um, and I think that is uh, kind of the, the, the framework, the foundation for a learning-centric, student-centric uh, fraternity and sorority life program. Yeah, and it makes me just think about, you know, when, when we host a leadership program, um, right, we we use the whole do what you say you will do acronym, and then we say, you know, do as we set or do as we do, right? Like, we want people to emulate our behavior. And I was processing this and wrote a, wrote a blog article about it a couple weeks ago that, you know, I wonder how many professionals in the field actually do all the things that we expect our students to do. Right. How many of us are doing the amount of community service um, and engaging with the community to the level we expect them to engage with the community? How many of us are actually learning and reading and writing and producing the same way that we expect them to be reading and writing and producing? Uh, How many of us are developing those relationships and seeking out those mentors versus just, you know, going through the motion? So I yeah, it's totally true that if we're not modeling it, we can't expect to engage students in that level and we really can't even expect to have the skills to engage students in that level so that's kind of a little soapbox of mine that's been popping up recently i like it we got to be on a journey towards vulnerability towards failure to being learners Um, these are all things that uh, are easy to ask students to you know be willing to take a risk and to fail to expose themselves to new things to get to know someone that they struggle to understand to uh, I mean, these are all things we ask students to do every day, and sometimes we're uh, scared to death to do them ourselves, and that makes sense, but we've got to push through it and do it. Yeah. So, Frank, as we, as we kind of come to the end of our, our conversation, um, and certainly I hope that we can continue having conversations beyond this, but uh, what are some final thoughts that you'd like to share about learning, development, engagement, anything for fraternity sorority professionals so they can do their work better? Well, I'll end with this, and it's probably emphasizing uh, some of the things that I've already said. But mm-hmm. you know, first, I think we have to view ourselves as educators, and we have to embrace that that um, um, that students are whole human beings, and we play a role in all of those. You know, the intellectual life, uh, social life, and a personal life, um, our spiritual spiritual life. These are all things that um, are part of a student's learning, and, and we can be a part of that uh, with them, too. So, you know, being all in and um, uh, really being committed to um, being an educator and viewing ourselves as an educator to really respecting who students are and their potential and doing that constant work of understanding ourselves and who we are and what our gifts and talents are. And then just, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close it here as if, if we can figure out who we are, the kind of ways that we're uniquely put together, what our gifts and talents and strengths are, and we can put ourselves in position to use those strengths and develop those strengths and gifts, and we can figure out kind of what a world's need is out there, then our whole life is going to be a gift of service to the world. Um, and, uh, and when we're doing that, then we're helping students do that too, and the outcome is exponential. That's fantastic. It's like finding your element and staying in that element and really doing doing what makes you a whole person to help other people become whole people. That is it. 
Well, Frank, I really appreciate you giving me some time and sharing some really, really solid thoughts that I'm going to, I can't wait to go back and, and re-listen to this and, and think and process even more. But I certainly appreciate you, you sharing your, your time and your thoughts with me. Well, Matt, I appreciate what you're doing, and I love that uh, you found something that uh, you thought might be an interesting idea, and you pursued it, and you took a risk, and now you're doing it and learning from it and sharing it with other people. So just thanks for being who you are, and, uh, and thanks for being the educator that you are, and I wish you the best of luck. Awesome. Thanks so much, Frank. So that's our episode for the week. If you have questions or comments... Hit me up on Twitter, at Matt Deeg, or leave a comment on iTunes or on the blog. Until our next episode, stay curious.